Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of 2 Kings. 2 Kings. We are trucking through the Old Testament, aren't we? Uh, we are trying to lay the groundwork as we've entered into our uh, special study in our small groups on experiencing God, knowing and doing the will of God. And today I just want to look at one man's journey from a self-centered lifestyle, self-centered living, to God-centered living. Last week we looked at the importance of God-centered living. I just want to take one Old Testament example and follow his, his, uh, his journey We looked earlier at Moses, and we talked about Moses leading the children of Israel out of Egypt in bondage and across the wilderness, and then we saw how he brought them right to the the land of Canaan, and the spies went into the land, and they checked it out, and we saw Joshua and Caleb, and and then the rest of the spies. Remember, we did the contrast there between those that said, we can't take the land, and Joshua and Caleb who said, we can. We had the man-centered living and God-centered living. And once the, the story unfolds in the history of the nation of Israel, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. They finally entered into the land, and only that, genera- that generation died off, and a new generation rose up. They took possession of the land. It's called the conquest, as you study biblical history. And then the era, the era of the kingdom, where, the, where David and, and Saul and David and Solomon was the pinnacle of the nation of Israel. And then because of just the disobedience and struggles, the kingdom was divided into two. And that's the context of where we are today, all the way fast-forwarding through the nation of Israel's history, where you have the prophets of Elijah and Elisha and their testimonies. And this specific uh, occasion is in chapter 5 of 2 Kings, and we're going to look at one man's journey. His man is, the man's name is Naaman. He's a Gentile. He's not even a, a believer. He's not even a, a Hebrew. Listen to what the Bible says. Well, let's, let me go through our, our notes. Somebody said there's eight, eight points today. It's going to be a short sermon. I don't know what that means. We'll see. Maybe she meant there are eight points that are short points. We'll see. Number one, that journey that Naaman took, he, he understood this this way. He, de- he depended on himself. So number one, a person that's self-sufficient depends on self. That's a no-brainer, right? We saw that last week. But I just want to read verse one in chapter five to illustrate this. Naaman, commander of the army for the king of Aram, some translations say Syria, was the same place, was a great man in his master's sight. And highly regarded because through him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was a brave warrior. That's a pretty confident man. Self-sufficient, self-made. But there's that little phrase at the end of verse 1. But he had a skin disease. Some translations say leprosy. Naaman was the kind of guy who had everything going for him. Look at what the scripture says. He's the commander of the army of the king of Aram. Some, some scholars have said he is the, the king of Aram's right-hand man. He is, he's like second in command, some have said. The Bible says it this way, a great man in his master's sight, highly regarded. And it's interesting, the Bible says, because through him, a pagan warrior, God had given him victory. That's interesting how God is even intervening and working in the nations around Israel. So this man had everything going for him, and we're going to see as we walk through this passage of Scripture, he was very self-confident. So a self-sufficient, self-centered person is going to depend on themselves. We've seen that, haven't we? 
We've walked through and seen how, uh, especially last week, as we looked at Joshua and Caleb, self-sufficiency doesn't work in the plan and purposes of God. I'm a, a fan of watching rock climbers. Did you hear me say watching rock climbers? When Cameron and I took our, our vacation to Yosemite last year, we, we just sat there in the base of the, the valley floor and watched some guys up there so far up there that we had to have Cameron's high-powered telescopic lens even to see that there were people up there. Fascinating watching those guys go up the rock face of El Capitan. It's like, it's like 300 feet of sheer rock. Last year in June, a man set a, a world record for scaling that, that rock, El Capitan in Yosemite. Usually it takes hours Usually it takes teams with, with, uh, with all of their gear. This man did it. It, it. Sometimes it takes days. This man by himself, his name is Alex Honnold, he did it in four hours with no ropes, nothing to hold on to, free climbing. I've watched the video. It is absolutely amazing. Right up the face of Yosemite. And I thought that is the epitome of depending on yourself. That's what he says. I don't have to trust the ropes. I don't have to trust, trust any of the, the pins that we would put in. I don't have to trust anybody else blaming all that they do. He said, I've just got myself to trust. And I thought, that is a description of most people. I've got this. When God begins to intervene and move into people's lives, remember we said it this way, a lot of people say, God, I've got this. No, you don't. Self-dependency. What's another word for that? Independent. Meaning I, meaning I don't need anybody else. Most of us men fall into that category, don't we? Did you hear any women say amen? I don't know if we did or not, but <laughs> self-sufficient, depending on self. But, but secondly, we watched in Naaman's life, he came to a point of desperation. Desperation, if you're taking notes, that's your second blank there. From depending on self to being desperate. Desperation, look at verse two. Again, remember we saw the last part of verse, not, verse one, but he had a skin disease, he had leprosy. Aram had gone on raids and brought back from the land of Israel a young girl who served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would go to the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his skin disease. So Naaman went and told his master what the girl from the land of Israel had said. Therefore the king of Aram said, go, and I will send a letter with you to the king of Israel. So he went and took with him 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, 10 changes of clothes, and he brought the letter to the king of Israel, and it read, when this letter comes to you, note that I have sent you my servant Naaman for you to cure him of his skin disease. By the way, isn't that interesting? That's the king doing what kings do. I'm the king, I'll send a letter to the other king. And people in Israel, they have prophets, I'll, I'll tell that king to heal my servant Naaman. And when the king of Israel read the letter, verse 7, he tore his clothes and asked, Am I God, killing and giving life that this man expects me to cure a man of his skin disease? Think it over, and you will see that he is only picking a fight with me. So here's the response of the king of Israel. He is so out of touch with what God's doing. He doesn't see that God is working in a, a pagan commander's life, bringing him to Israel, seeking some healing from the prophet of God. He just thinks the king of Aram is out to pick a fight with him. He doesn't get it. It's so interesting to me, the contrast in this story, that you have God working in the life of a, of a Gentile, of an unbeliever, yet the king of the nation of Israel doesn't even get it. Verse 8, when Elisha, he's that prophet, 
When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel tore his clothes, he sent a message to the king. Why have you torn your clothes? Have him come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. I love that. King, it's, it's not about you. Send him to me. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. Now, I just want, there's so much in that section that I just read about Naaman's desperation. You have a servant girl. You have a slave girl, probably a teenager, who is in the household of Naaman. She's there because of some of Naaman's raids on Israel. She's been captured. She's in his household attending to his wife. And he is so desperate, he listens to her. The commander of the army listens to this foreign Hebrew slave girl talk to his wife. Therefore, verse 5, the Bible says, the king of Aram says, um, go and I'll send a letter with you. So Naaman goes to his king. That's just kind of the chain of command. And the king says, well, we've got this. We'll do what we always do. And we'll take care of you. So another point of desperation, he listens to the slave girl. He's willing to approach his king, his, his master, and then look at the, the, the spoils or the, the payment that he sends in verse, um, verse 5. 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold. That's a bunch of loot, folks. And just 10 changes of clothes. I'm not sure what that's about. All of that gold, all of that silver. He is so desperate. He's willing to take this and give this. And then to go and approach the king of Israel. Desperation. Folks, he was so desperate to get healed of that disease that he was willing to do anything. Do you see the picture here? We're going to see not only was he desperate for that, but he was desperate to know the Lord. There's this, there's this sense of you have to come to that point where you recognize your need before you're willing to open your heart to Christ. A lot of times we've shared the gospel with people and, and have left that situation realizing that they really weren't even ready because they didn't recognize they had a need. You begin to talk to people and, and they don't acknowledge that they're sinners in need of a savior. That's where you have to start, to be desperate. That's where he was, a point of desperation. And he does what he knew to do. He's going to go to his master and let's, let's orchestrate something. Let's, let's do what we do. Number three, after desperation, the story unfolds. He really demands respect. And we can see the pride is still there. We can see that he, even though he's desperate to do whatever it takes to get healed, he's really not desperate to do whatever it takes to get healed. Have you ever been there? God, I'll do whatever it takes up to this point. Right? Remember Moses? Here am I, send Aaron. God, I'm willing, but if you really want me out of my comfort zone, if you really ask me, maybe not. That's where he is. God, I'm desperate. I'll do what he's saying to his king. I'm desperate to do whatever it takes. He's really not willing to do whatever it takes. Because look at verse 10. I love verse 9. It says, Naaman, with his horses and chariots, rolls up to Elisha's house. Then Elisha, verse 10, sent him a messenger who said, Go, wash seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be clean. Verse 11, but Naaman got angry and left saying, I was telling myself he will surely come out and stand and call on the name of Yahweh his God and will wave his hand over the spot and cure the, sin, the, the, the skin disease. Here, in essence, here's what Naaman's saying. Naaman says, here I am, make a big deal about me. He's saying to basically Elisha, don't you know who I am? 
to Elisha's messenger, can you picture this? He's gone to his king. He's gotten a letter to the king of Israel. He's been sent to the prophet. He rolls up with his entourage, his chariots and everything. Like, here I am. Here I am. And Elisha doesn't even go to the door. He sends his messenger. Ah, go tell him to wash in the river. He'll be fine. How would you react to that? I just went to all this trouble. I got a letter. I've got my horses and chariots. I've got this money, I've got this gold, I've got this wardrobe, and I'm ready to pay somebody to make me well, and you send your messenger out? Don't you know who I am? I'm demanding that you respect me because I'm a great commander. That's not the best place to be, is it? When you're wanting God to do a work, now, we don't know fully what, the, what Naaman understands as he goes to Israel. He just knows that there's a prophet there that heals people. So he's got to understand a little bit about the God of Israel as the one responsible for this. But he's demanding still, I'm not going to give up who I am. You come to me on my terms. Sound familiar? Okay, God, this is what I would like you to do for me. And this is what I'll do for you. These are my terms. Demanding respect, trying to negotiate. I love the, the story, Shaquille O'Neal, apparently on a radio broadcast throughout there when, when Obama was president, that he could just, he was so a, such a presence and a powerful man. He's like seven foot tall and 300 something pounds. I mean, he's huge, Shaquille O'Neal. He said, I, he walks in any room and demands respect. He said, I bet I could just walk right into the White House and then let me in. President's a basketball fan. He's got to know about me. He could not get in the White House. They turned him away. Security guards turned him away because he, he didn't have an appointment. And he went back on the radio and he started to, to, to tweet on Twitter about, doesn't he know who I am? Everybody knows me. Everybody should respect me. Kind of like Naaman. Here I am. Everybody knows me. Now, in Naaman's defense, did you remember what we read in verse 1 and 2? He's highly regarded. He's close to the king. He's been given victory. He's a brave warrior. He's got a lot going for him. If I was Elisha, I might have shown up and said, yeah, man. But he didn't. He sends his messenger and demands respect. Number four, he detests submission. Look at verse 11. After he's told to go and wash in the Jordan seven times. Verse 11 says this, Naaman got angry and left saying, surely he'll come out. Wave his hand over the spot. Look at verse 12. Aren't Abana and Farfar the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and left in a rage. Here's what, here's what Elisha says to the messenger. You're going to have to humble yourself, buddy, and go get in one of our rivers. By the way, I haven't been to Israel, but I'm told the Jordan River is a muddy river. Go and get in the muddy river, and you'll get clean. Doesn't make sense, does it? That's the messenger reminding him to do that. And he detests that somebody's telling him to do something so menial that the prophet himself won't even come and tell him that. That they won't even tell him, go to the, to the rivers in Damascus in your own land in Syria and, and it'll be better. He doesn't want to do that. He, he doesn't want to humble himself. Naaman's presented him, his position, his prestige, 
his power, his finances, and they haven't been good enough. The, the, the servant, the messenger of Elisha says, you got to humble yourself and go dip in the muddy water of the Jordan River. And so number five is closely on the heels of number four. He denies God's ways. Now, as you look at the journey, Naaman's pretty much going downhill, isn't he? It's not looking too good for him because he started at the wrong place, depending on himself, depending on other things, denying that God may have a better plan. He denies God's ways. He says in verse 12, aren't Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than the waters of Israel? Can I wash in them and be clean? I've got a better way to do this. I have a better plan. My plan. How had his plan worked for him up to this point? See, he got a little bit of truth. Go wash in the river. And he filtered it through his own understanding, his own knowledge, and said, okay, I'll go wash in my river. It's not what the prophet told him to do through the messenger, is it? Do you ever do that? Get just enough truth, and then you filter it through your own experience, and then you twist it and distort it. I tried to do what God told me to do. No, you didn't. He told you to go to the Jordan River. You went to the Rio Grande. Similar? Denying that God has a plan and a purpose that's different than my plan and my purpose. One of the truths that we're emphasizing through the Experiencing God study is God's ways are not our ways. We come to know God by experience as he accomplishes his plan and his purpose through us. Not as I accomplish my plan and my purpose, not as God blesses my plans and my agenda, but as I yield to him, submit to him. So this downward, I see a downward spiral that Naaman is on. He finally hits the bottom. And verse 13 is where it all turns around. Thank God for servants. He discovers God's salvation through humility. Verse 13 says, his servants approached and said to him, my father, there's a sign of respect. If the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more should you do it when he tells you wash and be clean? So Naaman went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times according to the command of the man of God. And his skin was restored, became like the skin of a small boy, and he was clean. Thank God for some servants who were willing to say to their master, their commander, we know what you're thinking. What's the big deal? If, if the prophet had told you something great, you'd have done it in a heartbeat. And of course, they knew him. But these servants come in and remind Naaman that it would be okay to humble himself. And I don't know what happened between verse 13 and 14. I don't know how long that took, but God was at work. God took this self-sufficient, self-dependent, independent commander, brave, this is the way it should be done. I've got a plan to say, you know what? I'll do it. And it's just very simply worded. He went, and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan. I've often wondered what that looked like. Every time I've read this story or heard this story told, was it, was it progressive? Was it the last dip? Seven times. And he was healed. He was clean. He discovered God's salvation. At that moment, God showed up. 
in his brokenness and his humility. That's the way God works. Yesterday, Kelly and I went, we're working on the house, and um, I don't know why. You know, God's been really good. When she's in a funk, I'm not in a funk. And then I, you know, I'm in a funk and she's on the word. So we just kind of do this kind of thing going like that. And for whatever reason, it all came together yesterday, a perfect storm, and we were having a pity party. And we were, we were sitting in the, our living room with the only two chairs that are there, a couple of broken chairs from the porch, sitting there and um, doors closed and there's a knock on the door. And I, I don't know who it is. I just holler, come on in, enter at your own risk. And the, nobody comes in. So I, I wonder what this is. Maybe it's a delivery. So I go to the door. And there's a person from a flower shop there. Said, oh, you're home just a minute. And little boy brings a little yellow vase with a smiley face on it and yellow flowers for Kelly. Oh, did you hear that? <laughs> and I mean, it was like we were, at, we were at that place where we're just desperate. God, just show up. I mean, we didn't pray that, but we were there. Uh, whenever I have a pity party, that's where I am. God knows I don't have to pray. <laughs> just show up. And God just showed up in our desperation in our brokenness, and encouraged us with yellow flowers. I was encouraged by the yellow flowers too. Discovering that God shows up when you're broken and humble. Number seven. I love these last three. Number seven, he delights in the Lord. He delights in the Lord. Verse 15. Then Naaman and his whole company went back to the man of God. They didn't go back to Damascus. They didn't go back to show off. He didn't go back to flaunt it. He didn't go back to the king. It says, Naaman and his whole company went back to the man of God. That's Elisha. And he stood before him and declared, I know there's no God in the whole world except in Israel. Isn't that great? He's the true God. Therefore, please accept, accept a gift from your servant. He doesn't know any better. He's going back to, to, to really pay the servant for what's happened in his life. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives, I stand before him. I will not accept it. Naaman urged him to accept it, but he refused. Verse 17, Naaman responded, if not, please let your servant be given as much soil as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will no longer offer a burnt offering or any sacrifice to any god, other god but Yahweh. Okay, how, how is that delighting in the Lord? Load up my saddlebags with dirt from Israel. In his own mind, he's getting a souvenir, I think. Do you ever collect dirt and rocks from someplace, sand from the beach of shell? And what he's saying in, in that context of that culture would make perfect sense for him to take some dirt from the holy place, take it to where he lives, and build an altar there to the Lord. And say, I'm going to worship the true God. He's delighting in the Lord. He's going to God's prophet and saying, please let me say thank you. And if not that, then let me take some of this dirt back home. He's delighting in the Lord. Things have changed. (laughs) This incredibly powerful, highly regarded man is scooping up dirt from Israel to take home with him. I love it. That's, That's showing... Humility, that's showing in the best way I know how, I want to honor the Lord and delight in him. I don't know what your delighting in the Lord looks like. It might be being on your knees. It might be walking. It might be 
It might be celebrating with some kind of tangible way like Naaman did, but it's important that we do that. It's important that you find some way tangibly to celebrate and delight in what God has done for you. If it's a journal, make it a journal. If it's a place, maybe make it a, a, a place where that becomes your, your rock of remembrance. But delight in him. And I love the last step here. He demonstrates genuine life change. Naaman demonstrates genuine life change. And when I read verse 18 and 19, you're going to wonder where in the world I got that. But hang with me, okay? However, after he says, I'm only going to worship Yahweh. However, in a particular matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master, the king of Aram, goes into the temple of Ramon to worship, and I, as his right-hand man, bow in the temple of Ramon, when I bow in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. So he said, go in peace. What in the world? Here's what I think is happening. I think this guy has so been transformed by the power of God that he's becoming very sensitive to the fact that his job requires him to go and worship in this pagan temple. And he asked the prophet, is that okay? Baby steps, and Elisha basically says, yes, go in peace, it's okay, because he knows the guy's heart. He's not saying, I'm going to worship Yahweh's the only true God and worship this Rimon, his other true God. He's saying, this is a part of my job, and I don't know how I'm going to get out of it. It's okay if I join my, my master when he goes to worship. It shows his heart. It shows that, that he is demonstrating genuine life change at that moment that God has, has healed him and he's placing his faith in God, the God of Elisha, the God of the Hebrews, Yahweh. God's working in his heart and he's sensitive to the pagan worship that he's been so involved in. And I believe his, his very act of saying to Elisha, will you forgive me when I do that? Is it okay? He's, he's showing his heart is right. Now, this picture today, as we went through these eight steps, described Naaman's journey from being a self-sufficient man to trusting in God. I would say his conversion experience. And often to come to Christ, we need to go through those steps, maybe not all like that, but we go through those places, finally bringing us to brokenness, to trusting in the Lord. But let me tell you something. This picture applies to every believer you may say, well, I know Christ is Savior. I don't have to go through all that. Wait a minute. How many times as believers do we get self-sufficient? Do we get, God, I've got this. Do we get to the place where we don't need him? And he wants to just take us back down and remind us that he is who he says, and he wants to do what he wants to do with us. See, he has the right to you, because if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, he paid for you. He created you, and he bought you back through Christ. And maybe you're in one of these places today, and as we conclude today, you just want to say, Lord, there's where I am. I'm dependent on myself, or I'm, I'm demanding some uh, respect, or maybe I detest submission, or maybe, God, I'm denying your ways. But you just need to come and delight yourself in him. And let God demonstrate genuine life change. One of my favorite life change stories is Chuck Colson. Special prosecutor to the White House, special counsel, I mean, 
1969 to 73. He was known as Nixon's hatchet man. Right at the end of that time, he made a commitment to Christ, prayed to receive Christ as a Savior, and there were skeptics like crazy. Okay, it's just, a, you know, he was sentenced to go to prison. It's one of those deals, you're just doing that to get out of prison, you're doing that to, to make people like you, but he demonstrated, not only through his prison term, but when he got out of there, a genuine life change experience. Became one of the most prolific writers in the defense of the gospel, incredible prison ministry fellowship that he, that he founded, and he demonstrated that this hardened, powerful man can be changed by the power of Christ to become a humble servant. That's what he calls all of us to do, right? Just like Naaman, that's what he wants of us. Let's pray together.